You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, y'all. All right, for those of you who are new, welcome to Citizens Church. My name is Mike M. I am one of the ministers here. I'm over home groups. Um, this will be our fourth week in Paul's letter to Titus. Last week, we talked about the false teachers, those who professed to know God, but denied him by their works. This, uh, today, we're going to go over the entirety of the second chapter of Titus. There's a hard turn right at the beginning. It says, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn to Titus chapter 2. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's on page 998. And while you're finding that, I want to share a quick story that might be helpful to understand why Paul writes the way that he does and what he writes. Some of you will have heard this story before. I was born in Seoul, South Korea, but my family moved to the United States when I was just three years old, which means I basically grew up in the States. Having my feet in two different cultures created several moments of culture shock for me in both directions. When I was in fourth grade, my uh, my dad told our family that an important visitor was coming to, uh, from Korea to have dinner with us. And so he got me to stand up and he said, show me how you're going to bow. This is a formal occasion. And so I got up and I drew from my memory of the most serious kind of bow I could think of. And this is what I did. And he goes, what in the world is that? And I'm like, um, Mr. Miyagi says... Always look the eye. And he's like, no, no, that's crazy. Don't, don't do that, okay? You need to bow, and don't, don't, don't look at the eye. Okay, do it again. So I did this. And he goes, no, 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 our guest is not a mafia boss. That's not what you do. And so we got into a whole discussion of different ways of bowing to different kinds of people in different situations. And then in his characteristic way, he got frustrated. He's like, sit down. And he got out a sheet of paper and made a table and was listing all the different kinds of bows that we could do. And he came up with over a dozen different variations. And I was like, how am I supposed to know this? Who taught you this? And, he's, and he couldn't think of anybody. See, he had just picked up all of this stuff. He never really thought about how he knew this cultural information that I completely lacked. Why is that? He grew up in Korea. I didn't, right? He had been able to just, it was caught what I had to be taught, right? I had to be explicitly taught things about my own culture that he had never thought twice about. Why? Because I didn't grow up there. This is the essence of Christian discipleship. If you are a believer in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's where we get the name of our church. But here's the thing. I bet none of you grew up there. Jesus is the only one who didn't have to be taught the culture of heaven. The rest of us have to be sat down and we have to learn it. This is why, for example, this is pretty common nowadays, well, there'll be couples that come into premarital counseling with one of our premarital counselors, and um, they're surprised to find out that they shouldn't be living together, that that's sinful. Why is that? That's totally normal in American culture, but that's not normal in the kingdom of the culture of God. 
And so when you hear, learn one of those kinds of things, you're like, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know I was supposed to do that. And just like I had to be taught how to bow or properly put down my chopsticks or the million other things that I didn't know, it can feel embarrassing. It can be humiliating to be confronted with these kinds of things. There are many times in my life when I thought, am I even really Korean? And we might feel, am I really a Christian? What have I been, what have I been doing this whole time? This is really important as we get into Titus chapter 2 and then um, in chapter 3 eventually. Learning the culture of heaven does not make you a Christian. Any more than learning Korean culture would make you Korean. I was not, I did not need to learn Korean culture to become a Korean, but because I was already Korean. In the same way, with the culture of the kingdom of heaven, you're not being invited to learn a way of behavior to become a citizen, but because you're already a citizen. So let's get to work. We're going to learn about our own culture. Turn to your Bibles, Titus chapter 2. We're going to go through every verse line by line. Titus 2.1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This one command actually contains two different commands, right? Paul's commanding Titus to hold to sound doctrine, as we saw in chapter 1. But notice he doesn't say to teach sound doctrine. He says to teach what accords with sound doctrine. What flows along with it. What comes along with it, right? To use my language from last week, the church and Christians need to be taught definitely what to declare, what truths to declare, but also we need to be taught what to demonstrate, how to live. Titus is being told to teach the Cretan church how to be more Christian than they are Cretan. The question for today would be this. At the end of my life, will God see me as a Christian who happened to live in the United States for a while? Or will he see me as an American who went to church once in a while? Where's your identity? To aid Titus, Paul divides his list into six kinds of people that he will need to lead. Differentiated by gender and stage of life, responsibility and status. He addresses the older men, then the older women, then the younger women, then the younger men, then Titus himself, and finally those who live in servitude. As a side note, the categories that Paul uses here in Titus are not meant to be exhausted. There's not every category of the kind of person, uh, kind of Christian uh, here, right? He's not going to talk about widows. Um, um, like he does to Timothy. He doesn't talk about, men, uh, he doesn't mention single people or divorced people like he does to the Corinthian church, okay? Before I go through this, these particulars, let me give you a quick overview of what this, what this passage is aiming at because this is so easily mis misunderstood, okay? Other than Titus, no one in this passage that's listed serves as an elder in the church. None of them are pastors. And yet when Paul describes their hearts, when he describes their lives, I want you to notice how he basically just describes the qualification of elder over and over and over again until he kind of runs out of things to say, okay? A few weeks ago, Jamin reminded us of the theological concept of the priesthood of all believers. In the Old Testament, even though not every Israelite served in the position of priest, they were called a nation of priests. They were to live holy lives as if they were priests. In the same way in the New Testament, even though not all Christians will ever serve as an elder in their life, all of us are called to live elder-like lives. 
The priesthood of all believers means that declaring and demonstrating the truth of the gospel is not the calling of just pastors and elders, but all who call themselves by the name of Christ. So as I go over these categories, again, just just note how they're essentially just variations on the qualification of elder that we saw in Titus chapter 1, also contained in 1 Timothy 3. All right, let's go verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, according to most commentators, the cutoff for older men is um, 40 to 50 years old and up. Basically, you're old enough to have adult children. Okay? It's important to note, like I said before, these men don't serve in the position of church elder. They're just regular members of the church. It says they're to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. Sober-minded reminds us that elders cannot be drunkards, but it also means more than that. These men know how to be moderate in all things. They don't re- they're calm and thoughtful. They don't react out of fear or anger. They don't fly off the handle. Next, it says they are to be dignified, which means worthy of respect. They're not wild men just desperately trying to recapture the glory of their youth. Instead, they command respect and honor in their demeanor. And finally, it says that instead of being out of control, they are to be filled with self-control, which is the last of the fruit of the Spirit. This is because before they can lead anyone else, they need to learn how to lead themselves. They need to master themselves. Our culture disciples the older generation to imitate and emulate the foolishness of youth. But the Bible teaches the exact opposite. The young are to imitate and emulate the wisdom and self-control of their elders. This is what accords with sound doctrine. Next, it says they are to be sound in three areas. It says faith, love, and steadfastness. This is essentially a restating of the more famous trio from 1 Corinthians 13. You guys might know this. These three remain, uh, faith, hope, and love, but the grace of these is love. You guys know that? This is basically a restatement of that. Faith and love are pretty self-explanatory. Faith is the invisible devotion that we have to Christ. Love is that invisible devotion made visible through sacrificial living for care for others. The third one, steadfastness, I need to unpack a little bit. Steadfastness is, is... essentially identical with hope. Let me explain. Steadfastness is the ability to hold on when your faith, when your love, feel like they're running out, when they're thin. Like when Jesus seems so far away, when his promises feel like they're not going to be fulfilled, when God seems small and the world seems so big, when everything that you have tried turns to dust in your hands, Where's your hope found? Steadfastness isn't just holding on for a week or a month. It's holding on for years and decades, living in the hope that Christ will return and make all things new, that he's already begun that process in you. It's that long obedience in the same direction. One of my deepest spiritual influences, Tim Keller, went to be with the Lord not that long ago, from pancreatic cancer, and the last two things that he said were, I'm ready to see Jesus now, and there's no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. He was steadfast, unwavering in his hope until the very, very end. This is the way that older men are to demonstrate their faith and their hope and their love. 
Let's go to verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. I want to, this is a very important word for you to note. If you write in your Bibles, underline this word, likewise. You're going to see it again. Likewise. This word links each of the gendered pairs of instructions to the older men and women, to the younger men and women. You see that? Twice. This is important. Like I said at the top, this is not meant to be six separate lists of six separate heart motives and behaviors, but this is the description of one single heart, the heart of Christ, with six different expressions. What does Christ in us look like in every stage of life, in every station of life, in every situation of life? In other words, the older women are not exempt from the list that I just went over. Right? If you're not a male over 50 years of age, you don't get to ignore verse 2 of, of Titus and be like, well, I'm just going to wait for my section. Right? You are all to do and be likewise. So in addition to what we just read, Titus is to lead the older women in four things. The first, it says, reverent in behavior. This is a single word in Greek. It's hard to translate. I think it's worth taking time to look at the actual Greek word. In the Greek, this word is hieroprepes. Right? You're never going to need to know that. But um, it's related to the word hierophant, which means high priest. It's hard to translate because this word describes the behavior of a high priest or priestess in a Greek temple as they give public service in front of a huge audience. And so different translations will say holy behavior, reverent behavior. Right? This word means the manifester of holiness, revealer of holiness. One of, the, one of the commentaries says that this use of the Greek aimed at women is unparalleled in, ancient, in the ancient Greek world, right? Because it's not just the older men who happen to not be elders who are called to exhibit their invisible faith through visible expressions of holiness. It's also the older women who happen not to be elders who are to likewise carry themselves in a priestly manner because they are fully members of the priesthood of all believers, this outward expression of their holy priesthood is mentioned in two negatives and one positive. It says they're not to be slanderers or slaves to much wine, which again recalls the qualifications for elder. I want you to picture a reality show. The Real Housewives of Crete. <laughs> Paul is saying don't be like that. Don't do whatever they do on that show, right? Just like the older men, don't waste your older years trying to relive your youth. They are to be adorned with grace and with wisdom and not togas that read, it's wine o'clock, right? <laughs> Finally, in ESV, it says they are to teach what is good. A better translation, um, which some translations have, is they are to be teachers of the good. Because this is not primarily a description of what they do, their actions, which is teaching, but it's the kind of women that they have become. If you remember, Jamin reminded us that what we behold, we become. And these women have been beholding Jesus Christ, the teacher of righteousness, for years and decades. And as they behold him, they become like him. And they earn the reputation as a teacher of righteousness by the way they live their lives. For both the older men and the older women, what Paul is describing is a life of sanctification, becoming more and more holy, beholding and becoming like the Christ we worship. But how is that going to happen and for what purpose? Let's keep reading. Verse 4 starts with, and so, which tells us. And so, 
train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. The older women are not purely becoming holy by their private, quiet time alone in their closet by themselves, but through community connecting with younger women, teaching and training them in godliness and righteousness. Note that Paul does not command Titus to teach the women directly. He wants that to be delegated. This is one of the reasons why so many of our home groups at Citizens Church are intentionally multi-generational, to allow for this. Many of our ministries are constructed that way. That way on purpose, right? But what about this list of the things that the women are to learn? In the ancient Greek and Roman world, self-controlled, sophrosune, was a classically feminine virtue, right? This is not surprising. Young women were expected to be chaste and modest, but young men were not. They sowed their wild oats. You know, boys will be boys, right? You've heard that. But in Crete as well as in the greater Roman world, there was a reaction against that idea. There was this new idea spreading of the new liberated Roman woman. Usually this was a wealthy Roman woman who had the means to be, and she was encouraged to live as wild as the men. They were being discipled to reject the domestic life. Like, don't destroy your figure by having babies. That's gross. Or if you have babies, don't waste your life raising them. They're annoying. Right? Hire someone and they'll take care of it for you. The good life is found in having fabulous hair and expensive jewelry and going to fashionable parties and drinking lots of wine and your husband's super boring, so have a boyfriend on the side or two or three or five, right? The phrase of the day that captured this idea was carpe diem, which is Latin for YOLO. (laughs) Because there's nothing new under the sun, the 21st century Western solution is astonishingly similar, is it not? Right? Hey, we should allow women to be as uncontrolled as men have, have always been allowed to be in every culture. If the women were free to be drunkards and promiscuous and wild, then that would bring equality and flourishing to our society. How is that working? That might be Western culture, that might be Cretan culture, but that is not the kingdom culture that Paul is trying to disciple them in. Let's take a look at verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Do you see that word likewise again? This is really important. Paul says something countercultural. He says in the kingdom of God, young men are expected to exhibit the same self-control that almost every human culture throughout history is expected of young women. The answer is not that young women should abandon their families and become debased like the young men. But instead, the young men are likewise to be self-controlled, to be pure, to manage their household wisely. That's one of the qualifications of elder. To be kind and obedient so as not to bring shame to the word of God. In other words, young men and young women are expected to be elder-like, even if they are not elderly. The world promises that meaning and joy are found in changing our circumstances in our life, collecting exciting toys and exciting experiences. But in the end, a life that is a collection of those things, the Bible calls hevel, meaningless, vapor. 
No one at the end of their life says, I should have gone to Cabo one more time. I wish I'd made an extra million. No one says that. That's waste. What Paul is saying is that in the kingdom of heaven, if all you have are meaningful relationships that are knit together by the love of Christ, and he uses different examples here, if all you had was a meaningful marriage that reflects the truth of the way that Christ loves his bride, the church. If all you had was a household that was discipled well. If all you had were meaningful relationships with your friends and your family members, with your spiritual family members here at church, that would be enough. That is a meaningful life, well lived. That is the antidote to the meaningless, hevel life, the wasted life that the world holds out as a solution to our joylessness. And this is true for both the young men and the young women. Verse 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Paul tells Titus, who is a younger man himself, that he is to model for the other younger men what an unwasted life of healthy leadership looks like. He is to demonstrate what he declares. Last in our list is those of the lowest status in society, the lowest caste, the bondservants. Verse 9 and 10. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Again, Paul's descri- Paul describes the character of an elder, really the character of Christ. Respectable, sober, in speech, not greedy for gain, right? In Crete, there was a situation where both the servants and the masters of the same household would belong to the same church. To, for today's context, I want you to imagine you, have, you, have a, you, you work in an entry-level position at a very large corporation. And you, you serve here at church, and you've been serving here long enough that you are now a leader of the volunteers. You're sort of like the owner of an area of ministry here, right? Managing a group of people. What would happen if your CEO started coming to our church? Like, how would you treat them? How would that affect your workplace? Would you try to leverage that here at church to lord over them, to show them their place, to show them how it really feels? Would you try to leverage that at work to gain an advantage and worm your way up by, by networking. Well, Paul is saying not to do those things. He tells instead the servants that they are the ones who have a special privilege. He says to them alone that they are the ones who will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's the title of our series. Notice he doesn't single out the pastors, the elders, the older members, or even Titus. He says, he says this about actually the, the two categories who Cretan culture looked down upon the most. He says this about the younger women that God's reputation depends on them and the servants. Because Cretan culture and even our culture might overlook certain kinds of people, but in God's kingdom, the first is the last, and the last is the first. Someone who's called a servant in the world will be called royal ambassador in the kingdom of God. They are just as much a part of the priesthood of all believers as anyone else, and they are doing their part to make the gospel of Jesus Christ beautiful to the world. Their lives have deep meaning. Finally, what is the point of this list of people, the different kinds of people? 
right? Paul's strategy is targeting the regular members of the church. Why is his strategy not enlisting superstar preachers, celebrity pastors, and instead to call on the members of the church to beautify Christ as if they were the priests? Verse 11 through 15. For, this is why, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. All right. So what is the point of this strategy? He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All people. Now let me pause here and unpack the word all. There's two main ways that the word all can, be, uh, can mean. It can mean all. Every single person without exception, and it could mean every kind of person without distinction. All of non-exception and all of non-distinction, okay? The word all here means every kind of person without distinction. It does not mean every, every single person without exception. Not every single person will be saved. The Bible does not teach universalism, okay? What it does teach is that every kind of person Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and even the bond servants will experience salvation. God has come for every kind of person, every nation, every tribe, every people, every tongue will be saved. Through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, every type of person without distinction is saved. But notice further, Paul describes two kinds, or two aspects rather, of salvation. In verse 14, Paul says that Jesus gave himself for us, and then that accomplished two different things. They're related but different. First, he says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. This is called justification. We're saved from the penalty of sin. If you have come today to church and you're struggling with secrets, struggling with suffering, struggling with confusion, struggling with doubt. Know that Jesus died that we might be free, free from our sin, free from condemnation, from God's wrath, free from all of these things so that we might be restored to right relationship with God. Jesus' death and resurrection invites us to repent and confess. I just want to invite you, if you are struggling with any of these kinds of things, to please come up and speak with one of the ministers, the pastors, the elders, um, so we can pray with you. Or if you came with someone that you know, pray with them. But that is not all that Jesus came and gave himself for. The second thing that Paul says is that Jesus also gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he's saying that not only are we saved, we are being trained to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. This is called sanctification, growing in holiness, in Christ-likeness. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. 
Jesus died that he might transform Cretans into citizens of heaven and teach them his own kingdom's culture. And the same is true of us here in the 21st century. Regardless of age, regardless of social status, regardless of whether or not you have a church title or not, Jesus is calling his people to learn his culture to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In conclusion, I want to address a few different groups of people. Again, if you're not a believer, or maybe you're not sure if you are a believer, maybe you're someone who's been hurt, not by Christ, but by Christians. I just, I want to say that I'm sorry on behalf of our church. But if you've been hurt by someone in the church, it's probably not because they were any of the things we just talked about. It's probably not because they were too kind or loving or steadfast or they were too self-controlled or dignified that they were generous. But they were the opposite of one of those things. They professed to know God, but they denied him by their works. We want you to know that our desire for our church is that it is a safe place to bring your pain and your hurts and your questions and your confusion, even your doubt. Jesus is here and he is calling for you. Second, maybe you're a believer, but you don't really see yourself as a leader. right? You, maybe you think, like, the Christian leaders are the people that are the ones here up on the stage, the ones in visible areas of ministry. This is not true. Not at all. I want to encourage you to see yourself the way that Jesus sees you. As an ambassador for his kingdom who is called to live as a priest and an elder, even if no one ever calls you by those titles in your life. Where are the spaces that you can press into community? Where are the places you can press into service? Find a team that you can serve on and get to know your teammates. We can always use more premarital counselors. We can always use more home group leaders. Our kids can always use more volunteers in that space. Students, we need huddle leaders. All of us are called to lead and be led, to exercise our giftings, to beautify and adorn the doctrine of Christ in the way that we serve the Lord. Just like Titus was not asked to teach every single person in the church, the work of our ministry is not only for the paid staff to do. There's no such thing as a professional Christian. It's for every member of the body of Christ, for the church. As Jamin said, every single one of us who claim the name of Jesus are in Christian ministry. All of us. The meaning of life is not found in pursuing more experiences or collecting more trinkets, but pressing into Christ to declare the truth of the gospel and to demonstrate the reality of Jesus' faithfulness through meaningful relationships, through mentoring, through service, a life of sacrifice. Finally, I want to encourage those who are in visible positions of leadership, who are volunteering in formal and informal spaces. This includes the grandparents in the room, the parents in the room. You are in Christian ministry. Those who are teachers, those who are volunteers. I especially am thinking about the students who just got back from camp, and you will be serving in city camp. Your huddle leaders eldered you, and now you get to turn around and elder the kids. 
There is a chain of eldering that goes throughout the whole church. You don't need to be elderly to be elder-like. That is our call. Let me read a quote by R.C. Sproul. I'm going to paraphrase it slightly. He says, When we sin as image bearers of God, we are saying to the whole of creation, to all of nature which God placed under our dominion, to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, we say, this is how God is. This is how your creator behaves. Look at this mirror, and you will see the character of the Almighty. We say to the world, God is covetous, and God is ruthless, and God is bitter. God is a murderer. God is a thief. God is a slanderer. God is an adulterer. God is all the things that we are doing. Part of the call of the Christian is to teach the opposite of those things, to demonstrate the story of Jesus with our life. You get to decide whether that story is true or false. As we learn the culture of a kingdom that we have never visited, I want you to know that it is normal that you're not going to get the bowing right and you're not going to know how to use the chopsticks and you're going to speak with an accent. You don't sound exactly like Jesus. That's normal. We are not called to be perfect. We are called to be faithful, to be steadfast. All of us in this room, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your call is to be faithful to adorn the doctrine by declaring the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and demonstrating it in your lives, in your relationships. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask a blessing over those who are going to be serving. Lord, we look at our students who are excited as they're graduating going out into the world, and I pray that you would allow them to take the deposit of their faith, to multiply it and strengthen it, Lord, as they're even serving the kids this, uh, uh, in, the weeks, um, in, in this week and in the weeks to come, God. Lord, I just pray that you would multiply um, what they're doing beyond what we can imagine. God, I pray for many healthy relationships. I pray that people would find a way to use their gifts to glorify you and find their joy. Lord, that you're inviting us all into ministry. Lord, to be, to be part of what you're doing as you reconcile all things to yourself. And we know that all of these things don't depend on us, but on you, God. Lord, that all that we do, all that is praiseworthy is not us, but Christ in us to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name.